All right. So those of you that know me, I like games. And um, so we're going to play game number two of Get to Know Your Pew. Woo! <laughs> I know that you're all excited about that. Um, Jason told me one time that he thinks my next career should be like hosting like Nickelodeon, like Truth Dare, Double Dare, or whatever. <laughs> but I don't have GAC in the background, so we got to do Get to Know Your Pew. Um, Okay, so here's the deal. I have a Green Life gift card because it's my favorite. Um, I have a favorite. Um, sorry. Um, anyway, so the goal is whoever knows the name of everyone in their pew as well as the pew across from them, and that does not... Shh, shh, time out. Time out. If you have like two or three people in your pew and the pew across, you have to do the one up to. You have to have at least 10 people's names, and it can't be people that you know, that you know what I mean. So whoever the first one is, I can name their row and the one across from them come up here. And you can't ask them for their name. You have to know it. You can't ask them. You can't ask them. No cheating. Woo, Chloe! All right. Okay. Okay. Sure. Uh, it's okay. No, you have to do the whole thing. One person. Okay. So, tell us. Tell us the names. Okay. Um, Laura, Chloe, Ivy, and then Janie. And then we left out. No one's on that side. No, you have to have at least ten people. You didn't say yes, that. I did. Riley. I want her to have it anyway. Okay. okay. All right. It's dark, so I can't see. But it was Hannah, Lindy, Matt, Megan, Brianna, Caitlin, Allie, and Sydney. Okay, that's close enough. Yay! Good job. All right. So I just want to point out to you guys that that was one person that was able to know the names of people that they sit in worship with every single Tuesday. One person that knew all of those people. That's not, that's not great, you guys. We see these people on campus. We see each other in our dorms and throughout Chattanooga. And like I was saying, every night on Tuesdays, we see these same people, yet we don't know the people's names that sit around us. And that's why the parable that we are talking about tonight is so important to this community of people. Because the parable is addressing our pride. Because it is so easy to come to a place like this, to come to a place that we're supposed to be worshiping God and just thinking about ourselves. If you haven't been here throughout this semester, um, I'm not necessarily even addressing you, but I also want to let you know what we've been talking about. Um, so we've been talking about the kingdom of God, and we've been explaining what it looks like and trying to figure it out by walking through the parables um, that Jesus is teaching us to, to learn about them. And this week, instead of necessarily 
learning about what the kingdom looks like. We're going to talk about what our posture should be, needs to be, in order to begin to grow and prepare this kingdom um, for what's, what's next. And like I was saying, like this parable is found in Luke 18. And before Jesus even jumps into the parable, Luke explains to us, the author of the book, um, who Jesus was talking to, and we're pretty sure it was Pharisees. You can put that first verse of Luke up there. Um, he said he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked upon others with contempt. So this was the audience that he was talking to the parable about. People that trusted in their own righteousness, who trusted in themselves. And I think by nature, college students, and I guess humans really, like we trust in ourselves a lot. And I know you may be like, I don't trust myself to do that or whatever, but we trust in ourselves enough to pick a major, to take classes in that major, to decorate our room, to choose our roommate. And we come to things like this, and, and we sit with people we want, and we trust in, in, in that. So very much, Jesus is talking to a group of people very similar to us as he is telling this parable. And the parable really is discussing this idea of this posture, like I was talking about, and this posture of humble dependency. Those are going to be the two kind of key words for tonight. Humble dependency that we... Um, need to learn about. And I'm going to go through the parable, and we're going to talk about it by contrasting, like, the two, there's two characters, a Pharisee and a tax collector, and we're going to contrast those two as well as us. And the us I'm talking about are people just here on a Tuesday night. I mean, we can talk about pride probably for, like, months and months, but I'm talking about really specifically our pride when we come to a place of worship. I mean, I'll be using the house as an example and all that kind of stuff just because it's easy and we're here. Um, that's kind of the people I will be contrasting, and we're going to just look through it, um, look through what it means to be humbly dependent by looking at how we need to recognize our sin, how we need to submit and obey. Um, so before we actually look at the parable, I'm going to pray for tonight. Um, Lord God, I um, want you to be known. I want your kingdom to shine forth and to grow. Um, I want this campus to know you and glorify you. I want the people in this room to worship you. God, I pray in the next minutes that I may decrease so that you may increase, that we may learn about you. God, I pray this all in your son's name. Amen. All right, you want to put Luke 18 up there? So it says, two men, men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And just to kind of explain to you these characters that Jesus has chosen to use in this parable, the Pharisee, first of all, was um, a member of a religious sect. Um, There's thought to be about 600 of them during Jesus' time. And their hope, their, their, what they came out of was they wanted to keep the law pure. They were very concerned about making sure to obey the law. And so what we've seen them do throughout Scripture is that they have this law, but then they add another one to it, and another one, another one, another one, another one, 
just to protect what's going on here, but they've forgotten about this. They've forgotten about the reason they've been given this law, and so now they're focused on this rule that they've made up. And that's why if you're reading throughout the Gospels and you see Jesus interacting with them and they get mad at him for healing on the Sabbath because they've made up a rule that you can't pick up a stick on the Sabbath or something like that, that's kind of where they're coming out of. But they're coming out of this heart of desiring purity, just they've forgotten about God and just stuck to their rules. And the other character um, is, is the tax collector. And he is probably chosen as a character in this parable because most everyone just saw him as unrighteous. That was the tag that was labeled on him. It'd be like us seeing like a dirty politician and being like, ugh, he's no good. And nobody, nobody liked the tax collectors because they were working for the Roman government, and so the Roman government had come in and was taking money from the Jews, so they weren't happy with that. And so the tax collector were kind of seen as these traitors who were taking money not only for the Roman government, but also they were stealing money for themselves on top of it. So it seems like Jesus used this example of a tax collector simply to say these are people that most people see as unrighteous. So that brings us into the story. So two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, that I'm not an extortioner, unjust, adulterer, and that I'm not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tithe of all that I get. And the tax collector, standing far off, did not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This parable, I was kind of thankful for in reading it, was like, okay, God, like, it's pretty obvious what you're trying to teach us. Like, you're teaching us about humility and about our pride, where there are some parables that I read, and I'm like, what in the world is it trying to communicate? I don't know. But it's pretty clear in, in this one, and it's also clear that it's a matter of the heart. Like, We look at the Pharisee doing all of these good acts and not sinning. But he's not doing any of it for the Lord. His heart isn't in it. He's just doing it to do it. He doesn't believe it. And the tax collector, on the other hand, is very obviously believing that he is a sinner and believing that he needs mercy. So as we talk through all of this tonight, and I'm saying, you know, like, recognize your sin and do this and whatever, Don't just do it because you're supposed to do it. It's not what I'm asking. The whole point of this parable is for it to be something that you do because you desire it, because you believe it, because you want it, because it's coming from your heart, not just because it's some checklist to do because you're righteous. So with that, the first part of humble dependency that we're going to look at is this idea of really recognizing our sin recognizing the reality of who we are. By definition, the word humble means to have an adequate or correct view of ourselves. 
And I know for me, I always thought that humility was like, think of myself as this terrible little person. But it really is have an accurate view of who you are. So as we recognize our sin, recognize the reality of who we are, we are sinning in humility. We look at the, the Pharisee, and it is very, very obvious that he in no way is recognizing any sort of sin or recognizing the reality of his life. He, he instead of saying, you know, like, I am so glad that I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this, and he never talks about anything that maybe he has done that is sinful. Yet as he is saying all of these things, he is actually committing sin. He is looking upon contempt, at contempt upon this tax collector. He's being unjust. He's extorting. He's illegally taking worth from this tax collector. Yet he's not recognizing any of it. And then he goes and compares himself to other people, which is always a huge red flag of pride. But we watch then the tax collector come into the picture, and we see him very obviously recognizing his sin. He says, straight up, like, I'm a sinner. And he doesn't justify it. He doesn't explain it. He just says, I am a sinner. And where we kind of come into the picture in terms of being here in a worship service, I think oftentimes, at least for me, I know that, yes, I come and I'm like, yeah, I am a sinner, but, oh, let me tell you all about this other stuff that I've done well. Like, you walk in here and your friend was like, oh my gosh, wasn't that test so hard? Did you cheat on it? And you're like, uh, yeah, I, I cheated, but, but let me tell you this story about this homeless guy that I met that I like, took to lunch and told all about Jesus. And we totally forget and kind of push away that sin. Or, yeah, I cheated on the test, but it was so hard. The professor would have, like, just, like, gotten rid of the test anyway, so it didn't matter. And we kind of just push our sin away and avoid it. And that begins to build up and build up and build up. And then we, too, like the Pharisee, compare ourselves to others. We may look and be like, well, at least I'm not doing that which then builds up our pride and then continues to allow us to sin. And so we have all of this sin of ours that we're ignoring that then begins to be something that separates us from each other. Like, who wants to be friends with somebody that thinks that they're way better than them? And who wants to be friends with somebody that just thinks that they're nothing and that you're so great and all that? But once we're able to actually recognize the reality that we are sinners, recognize who we are, we will be in a place that we won't be separated from those people, and we will be in a place where we can actually clearly see the Lord and our need for him because we see ourselves as, as who we are. And then that takes us into the next step of this idea of submission. Dependence, the, the dependence of the humble dependency. Submission being yielding everything to someone else. It is a need for somebody else. And this aspect, I really think, is what Luke is trying to get us to look at. He's saying that we 
need God. We need to be dependent upon him in this kingdom. And the reason I think that this is really what he's trying to get at is we look at the whole chapter of Luke 18 and the, the topic or the conversation right before it is about this persistent widow. It's about a widow. And a widow in those days were, were known as kind of helpless. They had to depend upon other people because they didn't have a husband to provide for them. They had to depend upon God to take care of them. And then we look at the opposite end of this parable, and it's people bringing their babies, their children to Jesus. Also, people that are very dependent, have nothing to offer kids, all they can really do is cry. They're dependent. And then right in the middle with this parable, we see this tax collector saying, I don't have anything to offer, but I'm dependent upon you. I need you. I think Luke's trying to focus us in on that. And of course we see the Pharisee, and he in no way like, acts as if he needs God. He's actually telling God how great he is, how wonderful he is. And what's crazy to me is that the Pharisee is telling God, yeah, well, I, I fast and I tithe, which the point of those two disciplines are for us to recognize our dependence upon God. Like, we fast so that we can recognize that it is not food, it is not bread alone that sustains us, but it is the word of God, that he is our sustainer, he is our life giver. And we tithe so that we can say, God, yeah, this is not our money, this is yours. We're giving it back to you. You are our provider, we need you. Yet the Pharisee, because he was doing it for himself, was not experiencing any sort of dependence upon God. Yeah, the tax collector recognized that. He's like, God, be merciful on me, for I am a sinner. He knew what he deserved, and he knew the only way to not receive wrath was, was by God granting him mercy. And even down to the actual literal physical posture of the tax collector beating his breast, not looking to heaven, we see it being very obvious that he is under the authority of God. We know that this happens in lots of other cultures where a lot of it, like Asian cultures, you will bow before you walk into a room or at your authority or, um, you know, you hear about people kneeling before the queen and all that kind of stuff that literally sometimes our physical body is demonstrating really what's happening in our heart or what we desire to happen in our heart. And I just picture the two of them, and I picture this Pharisee just like, with his like chest high and him just being like, look at me. And in all of that, recognizing that he has made this place of worship about himself. The only way and reason he addresses God was to thank him that he's not like other men and to boast about who he was. And in that is where I see the character of us step in. Like I was saying earlier, how often do we make our place of worship about ourselves? How often do we make it a kind of consumer mentality where we come so that we can hear a good message and that we can experience God and that we can sing a song that we like? Yet we we make this assumption that the house, that church is, is for us. 
And yes, our mission statement is to bring college-age students in China to a deeper love and knowledge of Jesus. But it's to bring this campus to a deeper love and knowledge of Jesus. This place is about God. It's about worshiping Him. It's not about us. And then what I think is crazy is we know that this Pharisee is like desiring purity and desiring all this, but he's in this temple and there's this tax collector over there and he's just putting him down. He's not going over there and saying, let me tell you about this purity that I am so excited about. Let me talk to you. We are not participating in building up the body. We are not going to our neighbor and saying, hi, my name is Kirsten. It's nice to meet you. Hey, have a great day. Enjoy your night. What's your name? That we come to this place and we have it be about us and what we can get from it and what we want. And we, we don't go on mission trips or retreats anymore because we've already experienced that. We've already gotten everything we need out of it. Yet when we come to a place where we're saying, I am a sinner, and Lord, I need you, that is when we will be able to rid ourselves of this pride, of this consumer mentality, because it is only because of Jesus that we will be able to step out of that pride, to step out of this place of it being about us. I was listening to a podcast, I guess this weekend, um, by this pastor out in California, and it was like, okay, yeah, got, got it. Um, but he was preaching on the idea of, I mean, the verse where it says, like, his power will be made perfect in your weakness. And the pastor was telling his congregation, he was like, why do you wake up every morning and pray, God, I'm, I'm going to live for you today. I'm going to do your commands, I'm going to do your will, I'm going to live for you. And I was like, okay, yeah, I do that. And he's like, no, we, we need to wake up and say, God, I need you today. I need you. And it kind of hit me that, that I, I do. Like, I, I'm living a life where I feel like I have control and all that, but I really actually need God to live like I was watching the rain fall outside my window, and I was like, whoa, the trees have to depend on God. Like, they have to depend on him for the rain. We need God. And when we recognize this, and when we step into this, he begins to work. He begins to show us that he is going to respond to our need. I've gotten this like ridiculous privilege of being able to hear so many fun stories lately just about how friends of mine or people I've met have put themselves or, or just have been in these positions where they do recognize their need for God. And as they ask him, to provide, he does. Over spring break, when we were in Belize, we met this lady who um, ran this orphanage, and she has like about 50 orphans in this house, and she's telling us a story about one night they realized that they weren't going to have 
like any food to feed anybody the next day. So they prayed, the kids prayed. She got a phone call the next day, two bus loads, school bus loads show up filled with food. Enough to feed her, enough to feed their kids, enough to feed the street kids, enough to feed other organizations. And then I heard a story, one of my friends for Lent, she decided that she needed to write an encouraging letter to her mom every day, writing her a fond memory of the two of them. Well, two problems in that situation. First of all, she is really has a terrible memory from her past. And second, she really doesn't have that many great memories to be had from the past. Yet she knew she needed to do this. So every day when she sits down to write the letter at lunch, she asks God, please give me a memory. And every day she gets a memory to write to her mom. And then I was talking to my roommate, and we were just talking about her family, and she was saying, telling me the story about how her sister had kind of left the family for a while and um, was really angry at her parents, and she was talking to her on Christmas Eve and really wanted her to be able to spend Christmas with them, and her sister was like, no, I am never talking to the family again. So my roommate goes home, and two hours later, her mom calls and says, get over here, your sister has come home for Christmas. That when we realize that we need God, even that simple switch in our head, and sometimes it is putting ourselves in those positions of needing him as well, that he will respond and he will answer. He did it for the tax collector, this unrighteous man, he justified him. He responded to what he asked for. And he gave the Pharisee what he asked for because the Pharisee didn't ask for anything, so he didn't get anything. But he'll do that with us. What is it that you need? What are you asking for? I know sometimes it can be scary to like depend on people in general. I was <laughs> depending on a friend to give me a grocery list yesterday, and I wasn't getting the grocery list, and so then I couldn't go get groceries, and then I couldn't make this recipe that I needed to make for my friend's party and all this kind of stuff, and I was freaking out about it because I didn't want to look bad. Because I didn't know if I could trust this other friend to, to give me this list. So if we don't trust God and we don't trust that he actually loves us, of course, depending on, upon him is going to be super hard. But he does love us. And he is trustworthy and he will respond to our needs. And then this moves us into kind of the last part of this humble dependency that when we sit before God and say, God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. God, I need you. I am a sinner. He then is like, all right, let's go. He asks us to step into this obedience. And we don't get a ton of a picture of the tax collector or the Pharisee after they leave this place of worship, after they leave this temple. But we do know that the tax collector goes home. 
He's going home to a place and to people that do see him as this person that steals and this bad guy, yet he's going home changed to them. Because we, too, aren't supposed to just maintain and hear. We're not supposed to just live out the kingdom and be in a posture for the kingdom in this place, but we are to go out. He wants us to be used in this kingdom because he wants to show off Jesus. But we can only show off Jesus when it's not about us. John the Baptist says, I've decided, like he said, I've decreased so that he may increase. So it makes sense that we must have this posture to begin to build this kingdom. And as we're in this place of obedience and place of God just whispering in our ears like, go talk to that person. Go pray with your friend. Go ask your roommate how she is. That we don't step back into that pride, just that false humility of being like, I'm not capable of doing that. I couldn't be the one that talks to that person. I'm not good enough. I don't know how to do that. I'm too shy. That's what Moses tried to do, and God got mad. He was like, no, I have chosen you. Like, stop being so prideful and thinking that you know more than I do about what you can do. Because, in fact, it is not what you can do, but what I'm going to do through you. I got pumped over spring break for some reason about first and second Corinthians, and I was just like, woo, did you know it says this? And everyone around me was probably like, okay, we know that you obviously are reading that a lot. Um, but it was so exciting because it seemed like everything was talking about this idea of like, you are not sufficient, but he is sufficient, and he has equipped you, and he's sending you out, and he is just putting you out there with his power. Um, so I have a little couple of those sections on there, but it is just super encouraging to me. Um, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many pillars of God's world, word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Can I go to the next one? Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. That when we recognize that we can't do it, he steps in and says, okay, I'm going to use you. You're going to be part of building this kingdom. When we stop treating our worship services as consumers, but make it about him, he begins to use us. And we begin to be able to see again. Our pride has just brought us in towards ourselves, just looking at who we are. But when that goes away, we can see Again, we are not blind. And once again, like I was saying with Luke, Luke ends chapter 18 with Jesus healing a blind man. And he asks this blind man, he says, what do you want? He says, I want to see you, Jesus. 
So when we ask this, I want to see you, Jesus. It has nothing to do with how righteous we are, how good we are to be able to get into this kingdom, but simply saying, okay, I am a sinner. I need you, Lord. I want to be humbly dependent and build your kingdom. So tonight, what I want us to do, and I don't do it yet, but I want us to do it in quiet. I want us to actually get in a posture on our knees. It's, I know it sounds like Catholic or I don't, I don't know. But I, <laughs> I, do, I, do, I don't want this to be something that is like, like the Pharisee where you're doing it because I told you to and this is a righteous act to do. But I think sometimes when we put ourselves, our physical bodies into positions that demonstrate submission, demonstrate our need, oftentimes our heart begins to, to follow. There's this song that I love, and there's only actually two lines in it, and the first line is, on my knees is where I'll be to see where my heart needs to be. So I want us to all go ahead and get on our knees right now. Um, and as you are here, I am going to read to you um, about Jesus, a man who is an example of perfect, humble dependency, even as God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him in the name that is above every name, so that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. When we are sitting in this posture of humble dependency, we can experience freedom. Where we go to that game show and we are excited to be a part of it because we know he is going to use us. We know he is going to give us those names. We know he is going to give us the ability to talk to each other because there's freedom there and he wants to use each and one of us. So let me pray. God, I, um, I am a sinner and I need your mercy. Thank you that you um, teach us that 
You will humble those who exalt themselves, but you will exalt those who humble themselves. Teach us how to live in a posture of humble dependency. Teach us how to bring about your kingdom, God. Lord, I love you. I need you. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.